Today begins part 7 of our study through the book of Joshua. Part 7 begins right here. And Bottom line up front, what you need to know, well, Joshua is a sequel. It's a sequel to the Pentateuch, to the Torah, to the first five books, to the story of the Exodus. It's a sequel to it all. And beyond the battlefields of Joshua, this book is really interested in the people taking possession of the land, land that had been promised to them, and God giving them rest. Rest. Some of you may need rest. Some of you may need more than just physical rest. And that is an invitation for us all. For Jesus says, come to me all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest for your souls is available for everyone if we will come, if we will bow to Him as Lord and Savior. It's an invitation and one that is worth reminding ourselves always. Well, as I said, we begin part 7 today. And that's going to begin in chapter 5, verse 2. But it's worth, I think, recapping at least the first four chapters. We've seen a lot of things happen and take take place so far in this story. Like, so far in this story, we've seen the importance of keeping the law and remembering the instructions that God has given to His people, that God has given to Joshua back in Joshua 1. Joshua, be careful to obey all the law that Moses has given you, not deviating from the left or the right. We've seen the importance of the whole, of the unity of the people of God, not just looking to our own needs, but also to the needs of others in the example of the two and a half tribes, of the Transjordan tribes. We've seen God save a woman who, like us all, is unworthy of saving, a woman who's got a lot of baggage, and yet because He opens her heart and because He saves her, and oh, by the way, it's not because she gives Him permission, but because He's God and He can do that for a Canaanite prostitute, just as He can do that for any one of our moms or dads or brothers or sisters, the most unlikely of people in our lives. And we've seen the importance of being reminded, of remembering. Why? Because... Our hearts are prone to wander. Why? Because we're very forgetful people. We are. We saw this last week in the significance of setting up the memorial of the twelve stones that recalled the event of the Jordan crossing so that when their little boys and girls come up to them and they say, Mom and Dad, what's that about? They say, that was when God separated the waters of the Jordan and we crossed over on dry ground. But of course, it wasn't just to remember what God did, but also who God is. And by the way, He's better. He's he's way better. He's way better than anything else this world has to offer. He's more satisfying. He's more enjoyable. He's more marvelous than anything else. Anything else. I use gold, for example, and I have many times the last two weeks. Gold is pretty valuable. If I had a stack of, I don't know, a million dollars worth of gold bars up here, you might be a little wowed. You might be a little awestruck to see that much gold and that much money. Wow, right? Because it's valuable, right? And why is it valuable? Because it's rare. It's rare. But as, we, as we've said before, well, fish are rare too. But, but fish lack a certain permanence that gold has. Fish die, fish rot. Gold is very, very permanent. But gold is not always very accessible, which has to do with the rarity of it, but unlike that, we see Jesus, who is rarer than gold, who is 
more permanent, right? He has no beginning. He has no end. He's alpha. He's omega. He's the I am. And unlike gold, he's totally accessible through his son. That's who he is. And that's what we've seen so far in the first four chapters of this story. Now, I'm going to go a little academic for a few moments. And so, if you appreciate that, excellent. And I'll talk more about what I'm speaking uh, right now, later on, once we get to chapter 8. But when it comes to Joshua and the issue of textual criticism, there are really two main manuscripts that we lean on. We lean upon the LXX, the Septuagint, and we lean upon the Masoretic text, abbreviated MT. It comes from the Leningrad Codex. Codex a fancy word for scrolls and manuscripts, things of that nature. And they both uh, kind of take a different avenue when it comes to the story of Joshua. I believe it's the Greek translation, uh, which actually has a longer uh, story and narrative in the book of Joshua. But, but up until the last, I don't know, 75 years, those are really the two options. The LXX, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and the Masoretic text, the MT, that came from the Leningrad Codex. That is, until one of the greatest archaeological discoveries ever in the Qumran Caves, that laid next to the Dead Sea. You probably know it more of the Dead Sea Scrolls or the Qumran Scrolls. And so with the Qumran Scrolls gave us a third option which helped add credibility to the Masoretic text. It seemed overwhelmingly, the Qumran Scrolls, to support the Masoretic text and translation of our Joshua story, but with one divergence. And I'll mention it. And the divergence comes immediately following chapter 5, verse 1. Now, of course, you'd say, well, what comes after chapter 5, verse 1? Chapter 5, verse 2. But not in the Qumran Scrolls. In the Qumran Scrolls, instead of finding chapter 5, verse 2, immediately following chapter 5, verse 1, you find chapter 8, verse 34 and 35. Well, in the Greek translations, in the LXX, you actually find chapter 8, 34 and 35, not after chapter 8, 33, but actually after chapter 9. Now, What's my point in mentioning that? My point is, is it's worth mentioning. And I'd rather you hear it here than hear it out there and get totally sidelined, get totally caught off guard, feel like the, you got socked in the stomach or someone took the wind out of your sails. And that often is how it's brought up. Someone if they know the Joshua story well, know that that's one of the major issues is the placement of the Joshua 8, 34, and 35 passage. Where does it go? There's three different positions. And so they would say, well, if you can't trust the placement of Joshua 8, 34, and 35, how can you trust Joshua 8, 34, and 35 in and of itself? And if you can't trust Joshua 8, 34, and 35, how can you trust the book of Joshua? If you can't trust the book of Joshua, how can you trust the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, which you say it's a sequel to? And if you can't trust the Torah, how can you trust the Old Testament? And if you can't trust the Old Testament, how can you trust the entire Bible itself? And everything begins to unravel. Or so they would like you to think. Causing this major, major crisis. It's true that the placement of Joshua chapter 8 is one of the major challenges that we have in studying the book of Joshua when dealing with this issue of textual criticism. But let me, let me try to bring some help to you uh, I have conversations. I had a conversation with a soldier today, and he said, isn't the Bible, like, really old? 
and it's been translated a whole lot, and can we really trust it? I mean, that's, that's one of the questions that people ask that is propagated within, I think, secular society outside of the church. And, and so I said, well, let's think about it. Can you trust the writings of Josephus, of the Roman historian Tacitus, of Caesar writing the Gallic Wars? Can you trust the history, uh, can you trust the, the writings of Thucydides or other ancient pieces of literature? And most people would say, yes, we can, we can trust them, of course. Well, when it comes to understanding the reliability of the Scripture, keep in mind that the Iliad has over 600 copies. That's a lot considering to all the other pieces of ancient literature that I mentioned. And most of those have very, very few. I think Caesar in the Gallic Wars has 10. And of those 10 copies, the oldest comes nearly 1,000 years after he wrote it. So you have the Iliad. It stands second to none in far as its manuscript authority goes with over 600 copies. Well, second to perhaps only the, the Bible. Iliad has over 600 copies. The Bible has over 5,600 copies, 20,000 of the New Testament alone. Now, if you've ever played the game Telephone, I imagine some of you probably have, and if you have, and it's quite an interesting game, you whisper a sentence or two sentences to a person, and they, of course, in turn whisper it to another person and another person, and then by the end, after 10, 15, 20 people have relayed the message to the other person, the final person relays the, the original message, and of course, we see how it's corrupted along the way. And of course, that, when you play the game, is done over the course of several minutes, not over the course of, I don't know, several hundred years. Take that into consideration, well, you could probably have a less less degree of accuracy, I suppose. But you would think with 20,000 copies, you line them up, you compare them. And remember, this is 20,000 copies of the New Testament. That's 27 books, okay? That's not 27 sentences, okay? That's not two or three sentences, that's... 20,000 copies of the entire New Testament, it might surprise you to find out that it has an accuracy rating when you compare them one to another, all 20,000, somewhere between 97 and 99 percent. 97 to 99 percent. And of the 3 percent, let's say it's only 97 percent accurate, of that 3 percent, 75 percent can be attributed to spelling errors alone. So, when people say, well, is it a problem that we're not sure where to place Joshua 8, 34, and 35. The Qumran Scrolls has it after chapter 5, verse 1. The Masoretic Text, yes, has it after chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, And the Greek translation has it after chapter 9. What do we do? Can we trust it? Um, My short answer is yes, and I don't think it's a major problem in fact, I don't think it changes the credibility of the Joshua 8, 34, and 35 passage in and of itself, and it certainly shouldn't cast any doubt on the Joshua accounts and story itself. Once again, this is a brief, brief, uh, I guess you might call it touching down upon this issue of textual criticism, one of the major challenges that's presented within this story. And as I'm mentioning it today, I'm mentioning it because we're in chapter 5, verse 2, and Of course, one of the possible placements comes after chapter 5, verse 1. And we'll talk more about this when we get to the actual chapter 8, 34, and 35 passage in and of itself. But I say that, once again, to, I hope, give you more confidence. No, our English Bibles are not perfect. 
but they come really, really close to it. And they are very trust, trustworthy, and they are very reliable, more so than I think many of us even realize. So, with that said, I'd like to unpack and exegete the text at this point. Chapter 5, verse 2. Chapter 5, verse 2. It says this, At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. Circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. Now, there's only two places in the Old Testament where there is a reference to flint knives. One is here, and one is in Exodus chapter 4, verse 25. And in the, Joshua, in the Exodus 4.25 story, it is dealing with Moses taking a flint knife and circumcising her son. Only two places it's mentioned here. And in Exodus chapter 4.25, which seems to be intentional, and that is perhaps to recall the earlier episode where Moses' wife, they're circumcising their, their son. And perhaps the issue of flint knives has to do with the ceremonial issues uh, behind the issue of circumcision in and of itself. For circumcision, if you're not sure what that is, you can read Genesis chapter 17 or any other medical manual dealing with this practice. But that's what he says, and I realize there was a little ambiguity at the phrase a second time in verse 2, and he's going to explain that in a second. But he comes to verse 3 and it says this, So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Hearloth. At Gibeath Hearloth. It's really hard to say that word, but it actually means hill, hill of foreskins. That's the word uh, that it means. It's no wonder that they usually refer to it by its other name, Gilgal, which simply means wheel. But it's here at this place that this is taking place and that Joshua is circumcising the sons of Israel. And then 4-7 to seven is going to add some light on that phrase a second time back in Joshua 5-2. Once again, I realize that's a strange thing uh, to refer to circumcising a second time, but that's what he says. So 4-7 to seven gives some clarity to this and it says this, And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt, well, they hadn't been circumcised. Verse 6, For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation... The men of war who came out of Egypt perished because, well, they didn't obey the voice of the Lord. And the Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, the land flowing with milk and honey. So, verse 7, it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So the explanation to the verse 2 reference to being circumcised a second time is not literally that they're circumcised a second time, but rather we understand that everyone who came out of Egypt, they had been circumcised. But while they were wandering the wilderness, they stopped. And they stopped. And one commentator says this, 
and trying to understand and explain why they would have stopped doing this, he writes, and I quote, At best, it was an act of negligence on the part of the Israelites. At worst, a defiant act of disobedience, end quote. If I had to guess, I said, Joe, what do you think it was? Are they just being negligent, or do you think this was pretty deliberate? I would probably err on the side of deliberate. Why? Because they know. This isn't, this isn't some new command that they're given. They were given this back in Genesis chapter 17, and verse 11. Father Abraham was given circumcision as a sign of the covenant people of God. They, they knew this. Right? This is what they did. All the baby boys, they were circumcised to identify them as the covenant people of God. Just as today, I think when you read Colossians 2, in some sense, we see baptism replacing circumcision as the sign of the covenant for both the men and the women who are of God. So that's the picture, right? Just as we are buried in the likeness of His death and raised to walk in newness of life. So there's the picture of the gospel. There's the picture, right? Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. He's fully God. He's fully man. He is sinless. He is buried. And then he comes up out of the grave, risen, conquering sin and death. And when we go into the water and we come up out of the water, we are really telling the story of the gospel, right? Of him being buried, of him rising again. That's what baptism does. Baptism tells a story. Baptism really mainly about Jesus. And baptism is the sign of really the new covenant people of God today. Well... This is the sign of the people of God here in the Old Testament. They knew this. It wasn't anything new. Genesis 17 made it clear. That and their track record, quite frankly, they didn't have the best track record. So yeah, if I had to pick one, I'd say this is probably an act of defiant disobedience. They just stopped. While they're in the wilderness, they stopped. They just stopped obeying God. No doubt, for some of you, they will be a great temptation in a couple weeks when you're home for the summer to just stop. To just check out. To just lower your guard when it comes to temptations or whatever else it might be. Don't do that. Don't do that. No. They are, I think, defying the king and the order that the king has given Well, we come to verse 8, and it says this, When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Joshua today, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so, the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt. It's an interesting and yet very vague phrase, the reproach of Egypt. What we're talking about here, when he says the reproach of Egypt, is really Egypt's scorn. Egypt's scorn. Egypt's smack talk. That's probably a a better 2018 explanation. And Moses warned that there was a high percentage that this might happen. You go back to Exodus 32, 12, Numbers 14, 13 to 16, Deuteronomy 9, 28, Moses warned, he he predicted that Egypt would probably do this in the event that God punished the people because of their sins, and this is exactly what they did. They said, look, God hates Israel. There they are, wandering in the wilderness. God's obviously, their God, he's obviously abandoned them. Look at them. You know, it's one thing, I think, 
when you mess up and you drop the ball, it's another to have people just rail on you, really too, uh, verbally attack you. And that's what they've been doing for some 40 years. That's what he means when he says the reproach of Egypt. That's exactly. They've been heckled, you might say, for the last 40 years. People, Egyptians have been talking trash. And he says, not today. Today I'm going to roll away this reproach of Egypt. I.e., today, today is a new day. It's a new chapter. And there's a little bit of play on words because Gilgal, it means wheel. But I guess when it's pronounced, it sounds very similar to roll away. So when he says, I've, I've rolled away I've rolled away Egypt's reproach. That's, that's basically what it sounds like when you pronounce the word Gilgal, for that's where they're at right now. And so we see this new start. We see this fresh start when it comes to the people. They have experienced their punishment for the last 40 years, and now it's over. And some of you perhaps say, I want that, Right? I want the reproaches of Egypt rolled away. I want a new start. I want a fresh start. I need that. Well, you're in good luck because the same God who rolled away the reproaches of Egypt is our God. Who the prophet says his mercies are new every day. Great is his faithfulness. And that's really good news for those of us who have more in common with these Israelites who've wandered and defied and disobeyed God than we'd really like to admit. That's really good news for those of us who just need a clean start, who need to turn a new page over in our lives. But hear this, okay? And this is really important. Look at verse 10. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they, they ate of the produce of the land unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there, there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. If you didn't catch this, it's pretty significant, verse 10, that they... They are being very, very careful to follow the instructions. And what are the instructions? Well, it's Passover. Remember Passover? Take the lamb, slaughter the lamb, put the blood on the door, angel passes over, kills the Egyptian kids, they can leave. It's Passover, right? It's important, right? That they, that, they, that they celebrate Passover. Why? I say to some degree, probably for the same reason they have the memorial of the rocks, because they're prone to forget, right? And all these things point back not just to what God has done, but who God is. That's why. And here they are keeping the Passover. Why is this significant? It's significant because when we look at the chronological indicators back in chapter 419, as well as here in chapter 510, Passover has begun about four days after they've arrived at Gilgal. In other words, half the people probably are not exactly healed up from this very delicate operation they just had in, 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 in all the guys being circumcised. They're not healed up. And why does that matter? If there was ever a reason to say, yeah, you know what, I'm going to skip a Sunday gathering 
or skip small group this week, or I'm going to skip Passover, right? This would be the reason, right? Because why? It's kind of inconvenient. Why? We just had surgery. Like, it's uncomfortable to sit down. It's uncomfortable to stand. It's uncomfortable to whatever, right? We just, we all, half of us here, we just had this surgery. Like, if there is a reason for us to say, you know what? We'll get Passover next year. It would be right now. Why? Because it's really not convenient. We got a lot going on. Right? I'm really busy. I'm not feeling that well. I mean, if these guys had a reason to blow off Passover, I mean, it's there. I can't think of a better reason than, than being circumcised. Uh, that's, that seems like a good reason. And now it's been four days since, they've, since this has happened. The point of this is, and don't miss this, is they are being very careful, right? They're being very careful to obey everything that God has told them to obey. They probably maybe don't feel like it right now. It's not the most convenient time right now, but they're doing it. Why? Because back in Joshua 1.7, that seems to be very much the key to success, right? Be strong and courageous. Oh, by the way, the context of that is being strong and courageous in order to be careful to obey all the law that Moses has given to you, not to depart to the left or the right. And they are. I mean, this is a new day. This is a fresh start. Today is the day the Lord has rolled away the reproach of Egypt. Yes! The the final piece of manna has fallen. This miracle gift that God has given them in providing them food, it's done. Now they can eat from this land flowing with milk and honey. It's a a monumentous day, a, a joyous day of celebration. It's a fresh start. It's a new start, but it's not without obedience. A lot of people like to have that fresh start, right? Mm. Pastor preached a good sermon. It was moving, okay, made me cry, made me feel. Yeah, I'll raise my hand. I know this has been the 12th time I've rededicated my life in the last six weeks, but that's okay. Oftentimes, many of us, we want to have that fresh start without any type of repentance, without any type of obedience. We want Jesus to be our Savior, but you know what? Who cares whether He's our Lord? Uh, you don't get Jesus as Savior unless you get Jesus with Lord. Okay? It's not like a buy one, get one free deal. Uh, it's a package deal. It's not Savior or Lord. It's Savior and Lord. And if He's Lord, you can't tell Him no. I don't know how many times I need to say that. You can't tell Him no. And so, yes, God, He's slow to anger. His mercies abound. Great is His faithfulness. And I'm thankful. And that, that is our God that we have today. Same God. And that's good news for us who need a fresh start. But let me be really clear. A fresh start that's not accompanied with obedience to God is nothing more than just hypocrisy. You're just a joke. Right? You're the guy they make the meme about. Fifth time he's dedicated his life this year. Rededicated his life this year. If that, that's you're just a joke, if, if obedience, if, if repentance is not accompanied with that, you know, all the fresh starts you want. No, today is the day that God has, has rolled away the reproach of Egypt. It's a new day. It's a new day. It's, it's a new dawn for the people. A new chapter, a new part of this story is happening. And it is, make no mistake about it, a joyous occasion. Well, perhaps one of the really interesting stories comes in the final verses of this chapter, and it says this. When Joshua 
was by Jericho. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand, and Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us? Are you for our adversaries? Good question. And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals. Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. That word behold, back in verse 13, it says, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behold, it indicates a change in perspective. So up until this point, we have this very all-knowing perspective of the narrator, but here we have a much more limited perspective. It captures some of the kind of surprise from Joshua. And of course, he's surprised. It doesn't say exactly what Joshua's doing. Maybe he's out with a recon team. And keep in mind, he is essentially behind enemy lines at this point. They've crossed the Jordan. They're behind enemy lines. Jericho is just about a few miles away. He doesn't know. I mean, he's on guard. He, I mean, he's, he's the commander-in-chief of the people. He is the great general. So, I mean, this is very natural response. Sees a guy, and his sword, it's not sheath. His sword is out. So he says, whoa, he's cut off guard, a little surprise, and he wants to know right away. I'd want to know the same thing. Are you for us or against us? Why? Because Joshua was charged with leading the people. Joshua was charged with the well-being of the people. Their lives are in his hand. It's a natural response, right? You force you against us. No. No. Okay, I'd be like, all right, did you not hear me the first time? Let me clarify. That was a hard question. Are you for us or against us? No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Hmm. And then he falls down on his face. He says, he worshipped him. And he says, my Lord... What do you have to say to your humble servant? He's got a very natural concern, very natural response. But this, this man, his interest was not the same as Joshua's. Joshua addresses him as Lord. It's unclear because Joshua uses the generic term rather than the specific name for God in addressing him as Lord. So it's unclear whether Joshua knows who he's talking to, whether this is some angelic representative of God, whether we have a theophany here, and this is maybe Christ, right? This is God taking this, this angelic form, speaking to him. We don't know. But Joshua's response is crucial. He's humble. Okay? Uh, he's laying face down on the ground. Okay? He's humble. He's expectant. What does, what does my Lord say to his servant? He's obedient. That's his attitude. He's ready to serve. His whole perspective has changed. And this is really, really important. Now, we don't know what happens. The commander of the Lord's army says, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground. And then 
It just ends. I'm like, no, don't end. Like, tell us more. It doesn't tell us more. The next part of the story, they're at Jericho. We're cut out of the conversation, right? The camera's turned off, and, and it's just, I assume maybe there was some more dialogue. And by all indications, yes, the commander of the army of the Lord was for Israel, and that seems to be pretty clear with the Jericho story if you read ahead in Joshua chapter 6. So then, why not just tell Joshua? When he says, are you for us or for our adversaries? Why not just tell him I'm for you? Because it seems to be ultimately that the case. Why not tell him that? And it appears to have been to teach Joshua a lesson about his priorities. That's what it seems to be. Joshua's priorities, Joshua's perspective is not necessarily as it should be. It's very human, very much like ours. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's right or that ours should be like Joshua's. See, for, for Joshua, you think about, all right, well, what's his priority? Well, you can see what his priority is through his question. Are you with us or against us? Like, in Joshua's mind, the most pressing issue, and for many of us, we're, we're no different because our, our weeks are defined by the circumstances at large around us. And that's not to belittle anyone's feelings by any means, but rather to put things in their proper perspective. And that's what's happening here. That's what's exactly happening here. He's putting Joshua's perspective and priorities how it should be. But his question is, is are you with us or against us? Why? Because the top priority on Joshua's mind, top priority on Joshua's mind, are the battles that lay ahead. They're behind enemy lines. Why wouldn't he ask that? But that's, that's the thing, right? Oftentimes, our priorities and our perspectives are governed by the circumstances in our lives from week to week. And the problem with that is it oftentimes pushes the things that should be our focus, like Jesus. Right? I'm thinking of like almost like Peter walking in the water. Like Jesus should be our perspective, should be our priority. But what happens is when life comes and those circumstances come, whether it's the finals week or hunting for a job or dealing with relational issues, those circumstances that come and invade our lives push away the things that should be priorities and that perspective. And Joshua's no different, right? I mean, you think you've got a lot going on right now. You don't have a lot going on right now. I don't have a lot going on right now. I mean, maybe if you're Andrew Brunson and you're facing 35 years in a Turkish prison because you're a Christian, okay, maybe. Maybe if you're a Sia Bibi and you're facing, I don't know, execution because you're a Christian and waiting death in a Pakistani prison, maybe you've got a lot going on. But you, you don't have a lot going on. Me, I don't have a lot going on. And once again, that's not to belittle anyone's feelings, but that's to put things in their proper perspective. Joshua thinks he's got a lot going on. And in some sense, he does. He's the commander. He's the general. Are you for us or against us? No. What do you mean, no? Joshua, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. Okay. <laughs> what do you have for me, my Lord? Right? Your servant is awaiting your orders. So Joshua's priorities, Joshua's perspectives are, are very much radically readjusted. He is humbled, and he's reminded, get this, he's reminded of what really matters. 
Remember the focus back in Joshua 1.7. New kid on the street. Moses has just died. Joshua's battlefield promoted. He is the supreme allied commander of sorts. And beyond any type of military instructions, which you would probably expect to find in the opening sequence of Joshua 1, the key to success is be strong and courageous. Remember, context here, because normally we just associate that with the movie. Be strong and courageous in order to be careful to do all the things that God has told you to do through Moses, not deviating to the right, not deviating to the left, that the word would not depart from your mouth. And then what does he tell Joshua? Joshua, I will be with you. I will be with you just as I was with Moses. And in case there was any doubt, he exalted Joshua in the sight of everyone. Much like the story of the Exodus where Moses is exalted and the people cross over through the Red Sea. Here Joshua is exalted, right? And when did that happen? I don't know, four days ago? It's like, Joshua, have you forgotten what God promised you in chapter 1? That was like a week and a half ago. Have you forgotten what God did four days ago? Like, it's, it's only been four days since this amazing miracle and God exalted you. God affirmed His faithfulness, His promises to you. And what are you doing? Like, where's your priorities? What's your perspective? Why are you afraid right now? You force her against us. No, I'm the commander of the Lord's army, Joshua. And then it hits him like a, to- a, a ton of bricks. He doesn't ask a follow-up question. Hey, by the way, you didn't answer my question. He has no need to, as he is reminded of this truth. <laughs> Some of us need to be reminded of this truth, or as we'd say in 2018, hashtag perspective, hashtag priorities. So we'd say, right, there's a little paraphrase of this. Joshua, you don't need to worry. God's already promised that he's going to be with you as he's with Moses. Church, God is with you. It's Romans 8, right? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The answer is no one. And oh, by the way, He's for us in a way that He's not for everyone else. So why is it that it seems like every week you've got to readjust your perspective and priorities? Well, because we're not all that different than Joshua, to be honest. That's why. That's why Israel has all these reminders, right? You've got Passover, right? You've got the Jordan Crossing Memorial, right? Why? Because our hearts are prone to wander and we're prone to forget. That's why. We need to be reminded of these things all the time. Because in about 30 minutes, you're going to walk out these doors, maybe less than that, and everything's going to rush back in. Everything's going to flood your mind again. And it's remembering this story. You force her against us? No, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. That's right. So Joshua, readjust your perspectives. Church, readjust your priorities. He's for you. He's for you. He's faithful. That's what the story is about. It's about God, not just what he's done, but it's about who he is. And as we've said week after week, he's better. He's infinitely more valuable. Like gold, but more rare. Like gold, but more permanent. No beginning, no end. The I am, the alpha, the omega like gold, but totally accessible through His Son, Jesus Christ, and what He has done for us on that cross. Are your priorities constantly pushed aside as the wind shifts 
your perspective? Well, if you struggle with that, well, then you're in good company. And so I would encourage you to recall this story. Ask God for help. Lord, help us. Help us. Help us to keep our eyes on you. Not to get distracted by the waves of life throwing different things at us in any given week. Pulling our our heart, our desire, our affections away from you. Help us to remember who you are. You are the great warrior king and God who fights our battles. The commander of the army of the Lord. Help us to rest in that. To remember that, yeah, that's who you are. Help us, Jesus. Help us. Thank you, God, that your mercies are new every day. Thank you for rolling away the reproaches of Egypt. Thank you that there is a start, there is a a restart, a, a, a page turning for those of us who right now, we just need it. But I pray that in so doing, we would not neglect repentance and obedience to you. Lord, thank you for this story. And thank you for being God. The great I am. No beginning, no end. I pray that we would constantly and continuously be wowed by you. In your name we pray, amen.